Chapter Thirty One of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Thirty One. The safety of Eliza was the object that now occupied my cares. To have slept after her example had been most proper, but my uncertainty with regard to her fate and my desire to conduct her to some other home kept my thoughts in perpetual motion. I waited with impatience till she should awake and allow me to consult with her on plans for futurity. Her sleep terminated not till the next day had arisen. Having recovered the remembrance of what had lately happened, she inquired for her sister. She wanted to view once more the face and kiss the lips of her beloved Susan. Some relief to her anguish she expected to derive from this privilege. When informed of the truth, when convinced that Susan had disappeared forever, she broke forth into fresh passion. It seemed as if her loss was not hopeless or complete as long as she was suffered to behold the face of her friend and to touch her lips. She accused me of acting without warrant and without justice, of defrauding her of her dearest and only consolation, and of treating her sister's sacred remains with barbarous indifference and rudeness. I explained in the gentlest terms the reasons of my conduct. I was not surprised or vexed that she at first treated them as futile and as heightening my offence. Such was the impulse of a grief which was properly excited by her loss. To be tranquil and steadfast in the midst of the usual causes of impetuosity and agony is either the prerogative of wisdom that sublimes itself above all selfish considerations or the badge of giddy and unfeeling folly. The torrent was at length exhausted. Upbraiding was at an end, and gratitude and tenderness and implicit acquiescence in any scheme which my prudence should suggest succeeded. I mentioned her uncle as one to whom it would be proper in her present distress to apply. She started and betrayed uneasiness at this name. It was evident that she by no means concurred with me in my notions of propriety that she thought with aversion of seeking her uncle's protection. I requested her to state her objections to this scheme, or to mention any other which she thought preferable. She knew nobody. She had not a friend in the world but myself. She had never been out of her father's house. She had no relation but her uncle Philip, and he—she could not live with him— I must not insist upon her going to his house. It was not the place for her. She should never be happy there. I was at first inclined to suspect in my friend some capricious and groundless antipathy. I desired her to explain what in her uncle's character made him so obnoxious. She refused to be more explicit, and persisted in thinking that his house was no suitable abode for her. Finding her in this respect invincible, I sought for some other expedient. Might she not easily be accommodated as a boarder in the city, or some village, or in a remote quarter of the country? 
Ellis, her nearest and most opulent neighbor, had refused to receive her, but there were others who had not his fears. There were others, within the compass of a day's journey, who were strangers to the cause of Hadwin's death, but would it not be culpable to take advantage of that ignorance? Their compliance ought not to be the result of deception. While thus engaged, the incidents of my late journey recurred to my remembrance, and I asked, Is not the honest woman who entertained Wallace just such a person as that of whom I am in search? Her treatment of Wallace shows her to be exempt from chimerical fears, proves that she has room in her house for an occasional inmate. Encouraged by these views, I told my weeping companion that I had recollected a family in which she would be kindly treated, and that, if she chose, we would not lose a moment in repairing thither. Horses belonging to the farm grazed in the meadows, and a couple of these would carry us in a few hours to the place which I had selected for her residence. On her eagerly assenting to this proposal, I inquired in whose care and in what state our present habitation should be left. The father's property now belonged to the daughter. Eliza's mind was quick, active, and sagacious, but her total inexperience gave her sometimes the appearance of folly. She was eager to fly from this house and to resign herself and her property without limitation or condition to my control. Our intercourse had been short, but she relied on my protection and counsel as absolutely as she had been accustomed to do upon her father's. She knew not what answer to make to my inquiry. Whatever I pleased to do was the best. What did I think ought to be done? Ah, thought I, sweet, artless, and simple girl, how wouldst thou have fared if heaven if heaven had not sent me to thy succor. There are beings in the world who would make a selfish use of thy confidence, who would beguile thee at once of innocence and property. Such am not I. Thy welfare is a precious deposit, and no father or brother could watch over it with more solicitude than I will do. I was aware that Mr. Hadwin might have fixed the destination of his property and the guardianship of his daughters by will. On suggesting this to my friend, it instantly reminded her of an incident that took place after his last return from the city. He had drawn up his will, and gave it into Susan's possession, who placed it in a drawer, whence it was now taken by my friend. By this will his property was now found— to be bequeathed to his two daughters, and his brother, Philip Hadwin, was named executor and guardian to his daughters till they should be twenty years old. This name was no sooner heard by my friend than she exclaimed in a tone of affright, "'Executor! My uncle! What is that? What power does that give him?' "'I know not exactly the power of executors,' He will doubtless have possession of your property till you are twenty years of age. Your person will likewise be under his care till that time. Must he decide where I am to live? He is vested with all the power of a father. This assurance excited the deepest consternation. 
She fixed her eyes on the ground and was lost for a time in the deepest reverie. Recovering at length, she said with a sigh, "'What if my father had made no will?' "'In that case a guardian could not be dispensed with, "'but the right of naming him would belong to yourself.' "'And my uncle would have nothing to do with my affairs?' "'I am no lawyer,' said I, "'but I presume all authority over your person and property "'would devolve upon the guardian of your own choice.' "'Then I am free.' Saying this with a sudden motion, she tore in several pieces the will which, during this dialogue, she had held in her hand, and threw the fragments into the fire. No action was more unexpected to me than this. My astonishment hindered me from attempting to rescue the paper from the flames. It was consumed in a moment.' I was at a loss in what manner to regard this sacrifice. It denoted a force of mind little in unison with that simplicity and helplessness which this girl had hitherto displayed. It argued the deepest apprehensions of mistreatment from her uncle. Whether his conduct had justified this violent antipathy, I had no means of judging. Mr. Hadwin's choice of him as his executor was certainly one proof of his integrity. My abstraction was noticed by Eliza with visible anxiety. It was plain that she dreaded the impression which this act of seeming temerity had made upon me. "'Do not be angry with me,' said she. "'Perhaps I have been wrong, but I could not help it.' I will have but one guardian and one protector. The deed was irrevocable. In my present ignorance of the domestic history of the Hadwins, I was unqualified to judge how far circumstances might extenuate or justify the act. On both accounts, therefore, it was improper to expatiate upon it. It was concluded to leave the care of the house to honest Caleb, to fasten closets and drawers, and carrying away the money which was found in one of them, and which amounted to no inconsiderable sum, to repair to the house formerly mentioned. The air was cold, a heavy snow began to fall in the night, the wind blew tempestuously, and we were compelled to confront it. In leaving her dwelling in which she had spent her whole life, the unhappy girl gave way afresh to her sorrow. It made her feeble and helpless. When placed upon the horse, she was scarcely able to maintain her seat. Already chilled by the cold, blinded by the drifting snow, and cut by the blast, all my remonstrances were needed to inspire her with resolution." I am not accustomed to regard the elements, or suffer them to retard or divert me from any design that I have formed. I had overlooked the weak and delicate frame of my companion, and made no account of her being less able to support cold and fatigue than myself. It was not till we had made some progress in our way that I began to view in their true light the obstacles that were to be encountered. I conceived it, however, too late to retreat, and endeavored to push on with speed. 
My companion was a skilful rider, but her steed was refractory and unmanageable. She was able, however, to curb his spirit till we had proceeded ten or twelve miles from Malverton. The wind and the cold became too violent to be longer endured, and I resolved to stop at the first house which should present itself to my view for the sake of refreshment and warmth. We now entered a wood of some extent, at the termination of which I remembered that a dwelling stood. To pass this wood, therefore, with expedition, was all that remained before we could reach a hospitable asylum. I endeavored to sustain, by this information, the sinking spirits of my companion. While busy in conversing with her, a blast of irresistible force twisted off the highest branch of a tree before us. It fell in the midst of the road at the distance of a few feet from her horse's head. Terrified by this accident, the horse started from the path, and rushing into the wood in a moment threw himself and his rider on the ground by encountering the rugged stalk of an oak. I dismounted and flew to her succor. The snow was already dyed with the blood which flowed from some wound in her head, and she lay without sense or motion. My terrors did not hinder me from anxiously searching for the hurt which was received, and ascertaining the extent of the injury. Her forehead was considerably bruised, but to my unspeakable joy the blood flowed from the nostrils, and was, therefore, to be regarded as no mortal symptom. I lifted her in my arms, and looked around me for some means of relief. The house at which I proposed to stop was upwards of a mile distant. I remembered none that was nearer. To place the wounded girl on my own horse, and proceed gently to the house in question, was the sole expedient, but at present she was senseless, and might, on recovering, be too feeble to sustain her own weight. To recall her to life was my first duty, but I was powerless or unacquainted with the means. I gazed upon her features, and endeavored, by pressing her in my arms, to inspire her with some warmth. I looked towards the road, and listened for the wished-for sound of some carriage that might be prevailed on to stop and receive her. Nothing was more improbable than that either pleasure or business would induce men to encounter so chilling and vehement a blast. To be lighted on by some traveller was, therefore, a hopeless event. Meanwhile Eliza's swoon continued, and my alarm increased. What effect her half-frozen blood would have in prolonging this condition, or preventing her return to life, awakened the deepest apprehensions. I left the wood, still bearing her in my arms, and re-entered the road, from the desire of descrying, as soon as possible, the coming passenger. I looked this way and that, and again listened. Nothing but the sweeping blast, rent and fallen branches, and snow that filled and obscured the air were perceivable. Each moment retarded the course of my own blood, and stiffened my sinews, and made the state of my companion more desperate. How was I to act? To perish myself, 
or see her perish, was an ignoble fate. Courage and activity were still able to avert it. My horse stood near, docile and obsequious. To mount him and proceed on my way, holding my lifeless burden in my arms, was all that remained. At this moment my attention was called by several voices issuing from the wood. It was the note of gaiety and glee. Presently a sleigh, with several persons of both sexes, appeared in a road which led through the forest into that in which I stood. They moved at a quick pace, but their voices were hushed, and they checked the speed of their horses on discovering us. No occurrence was more auspicious than this, for I relied with perfect confidence on the benevolence of these persons, and, as soon as they came near, claimed their assistance. My story was listened to with sympathy, and one of the young men, leaping from the sleigh, assisted me in placing Eliza in the place which he had left. A female, of sweet aspect and engaging manners, insisted upon turning back and hastening to the house, where it seems her father resided, and which the party had just left. I rode after the sleigh, which in a few minutes arrived at the house. The dwelling was spacious and neat, and a venerable man and woman, alarmed by the quick return of the young people, came forth to know the cause. They received their guest with the utmost tenderness, and provided her with all the accommodations which her condition required. Their daughter relinquished the scheme of pleasure in which she had been engaged, and compelling her companions to depart without her, remained to nurse and console the sick. A little time showed that no lasting injury had been suffered. Contusions, more troublesome than dangerous, and easily curable by such applications as rural and traditional wisdom has discovered, were the only consequences of the fall. My mind, being relieved from apprehensions on this score, had leisure to reflect upon the use which might be made of the present state of things. When I remarked the structure of this house and the features and deportment of its inhabitants, methought I discerned a powerful resemblance between this family and Hadwin's. It seemed as if some benignant power had led us hither as to the most suitable asylum that could be obtained, and, in order to supply to the forlorn Eliza the place of those parents and that sister she had lost, I conceived that, if their concurrence could be gained, no abode was more suitable than this. No time was to be lost in gaining this concurrence. The curiosity of our host and hostess, whose name was Curling, speedily afforded me an opportunity to disclose the history and real situation of my friend. There were no motives to reserve or prevarication. There was nothing which I did not faithfully and circumstantially relate. I concluded with stating my wishes that they would admit my friend as a boarder into their house. The old man was warm in his concurrence. His wife betrayed some scruples which, however, her husband's arguments and mine removed. I did not even suppress the tenor and destruction of the will and the antipathy which Eliza had conceived for her uncle, and which I declared myself unable to explain. It presently appeared that Mr. Curling had some knowledge of Philip Hadwin, 
and that the latter had acquired the repute of being obdurate and profligate. He employed all means to accomplish his selfish ends, and would probably endeavor to usurp the property which his brother had left. To provide against his power and his malice would be particularly incumbent on us, and my new friend readily promised his assistance in the measures which we should take to that end. End of chapter 31